Well, I want to welcome everyone in to Red Brush Christian Church. We are in week two of our series that we're calling It's Who We Are. Uh, last week, we laid out this idea that our staff had adopted these seven core values or seven core principles that we were going to strive to live and work by. And so I thought, who better to know uh, what we have committed to live and work by than, than us, the church, together. And so uh, the reason why I wanted to lay these out for you is because these are not principles that are just really relegated to a church staff. These are principles that are for a church as a whole because they're principles for a believer like you. And so over the next six weeks, we're going to unpack all of these core values, unpack what it looks like to really be a believer in Christ, what we have committed to because of who Jesus is. And you're going to see that all of these start from that standpoint. All of these core principles start from who Jesus is and what he has done, and now who he is making us to be. And so I want to work you through uh, those seven core principles. Last week, uh, we laid out the idea that, that we work hard to glorify God, and, and the kind of the tagline of that was Colossians 3.23. We do all things for the glory of God. We work hard to glorify God. This week, uh, we're going to focus on the core principle of being filled to be emptied. We are growing in Christ to help others do the same. Next week will be a fun one for us all. No gossip. We build each other up and we handle conflict directly. Number four, strong character. We live and work with integrity. Five, strong families. Our first ministry is at home. Week six, we'll lay out this idea of no fear. We make decisions through prayer and not out of fear. And we'll wrap up in week seven with the idea of team mentality. We each do our part to make Christ known. And so last week, we laid out this idea of Colossians 3.23. We work hard to glorify God. And at the end of that, we had this action point where we said, listen, I don't need anything from you. I want this for you. This is who God has purchased us to be. This is who his Holy Spirit is sanctifying us to become, a people who live to serve one another, both inside the church and outside of the church. And so practically speaking, we laid out this challenge for you to serve in the church to, to remember that, that this is not something that we, we get from you. This is something that we give to each other. And we're going to expand on that idea a little bit this morning. But i got to say, I was absolutely blown away by your response to that. I, I've stood before congregations before and made these pleas, and it was always from a standpoint of, this will not continue the way that we've done this unless you step up. And I, I got to tell you, it was a freeing moment to be able to stand before you and say, listen, we've, we've got volunteers. We've got people serving in ministry, so I don't need this from you or this place is going to collapse. No, I, I want this for you because this is who Christ has called us to be, a people who love and serve one another. And 59 of you took the opportunity to step forward and say, I'm going to serve in some capacity now, I know that, that maybe you weren't here last week, or, or maybe you were undecided on what, what should I do. So uh, I want to give you that opportunity real quick before we jump into this morning's message. Uh, around you in your pew, there is a card that on one side says, I'm saying yes. On the back is just an opportunity for you to put uh, your information. 
Uh, if there is a place that you feel like this is where I'm spiritually gifted, this is where God has called me to, this is where I'm passionate about, go ahead and mark that. Um, you can drop that off in the baskets up front. Uh, you can leave them in your pews. We'll pick them up later. Uh, or if you don't know, you know I need to serve, you know I need to be a part of the body and building each other up, but I have no idea what I'm passionate about in ministry or where I fit in. We want to help you with that. So fill out your information, leave the rest blank on the bottom, and we'll contact you and give you an assessment that helps you get an idea of where God has called you in that. But I hope you'll take a part of that like so many did last week. So this week, we are diving into core value number two, filled to be emptied. And we're primarily, actually all of our time, is going to be spent in Philippians chapter two. So if you've got your Bibles, open those up. Philippians chapter two. <clears throat> Now, one of the things we always do and we always have to continue to come back to is not to draw a chapter or a verse out on its own. You need to understand why and who and what's going on as this letter is written. So the context of Philippians is pretty wild. Paul is writing this letter from prison. And he's writing to encourage a community of believers who have been an encouragement to him. You see later on in chapter 2, this phrase that Paul says. He, he talks about a man named Epaphroditus, and, and he says, Epaphroditus was your messenger. You sent him to encourage me and give me what I need, and as a response, I, I'm giving you encouragement as well. So Paul is writing to the church in Philippi to encourage them as they walk this journey out. Now, here's what you need to understand. Paul recognizes that I am in chains for the gospel. I am suffering for the gospel message. And he writes to encourage them, hey, this could be coming for you too. But hold on to the Lord. Because he encourages them with this. He says, I, I've been in chains for the gospel. I'm in prison because of preaching the word of God. And here's what I've come to the conclusion of. The gospel has advanced because of it. That in my chains, in my suffering, God has advanced the gospel through it. He says, the whole palace guard has heard the gospel. All of the other prisoners have heard the gospel. The gospel is being advanced through my chains, and it can for yours too. In fact, Paul says early on in chapter 1, he says, even people outside of prison, fellow believers, have heard of my suffering. They've heard of my chains. And their response to that is to be emboldened with the gospel. They recognize that God uses all of these situations, both good and bad, for the gospel to be advanced. And he says, it has encouraged them as well. And so, Paul reminds them that as he lays out this, this first chapter of, hey, this is my suffering, this is what could come for you as well. He, he lays out this challenge to them. He says, in light of all of this, in light of the gospel message, in light of who Jesus is and what he's done, you as a people are called to be different. We as a people are called to be different than the culture around us. This is what Paul is laying out for the church in Philippi. It's what he's laying out for the church in Louisville today. You are called to be different, set apart because of the gospel. He says, live a life worthy of the gospel. Even if, when persecution comes, live a life worthy of the gospel. Because the conclusion that he comes to in chapter 1 is this. Even when it looks like we're losing, Christ is winning. 
Even when it looks like suffering is everywhere, even when it looks like this, this way of, of following Jesus is being snuffed out, no, the gospel's advancing. Christ is winning, has won, and ultimately will win at the end of all things. Hold on to him. So as we get to chapter 2, what Paul is going to do is he's going to list some things that believers have received through Jesus, and now then how it practically plays out in their life. So we're going to open up chapter 2, and we'll start in verse 1. Paul says this, he writes, Therefore, if you have any encouragement for being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, I, I want to stop there because the phrase if is a rhetorical phrase. Paul is not saying some believers have this, some believers don't. Maybe you do, maybe you don't. know. what Paul is saying is rhetorically, if you have this, meaning you have all of these things, you have encouragement from being united with Christ, you have comfort that comes from his love, you have this common bond that is sharing in the Spirit with other believers, and you've received tenderness and compassion. So in other words, what Paul is saying, encouragement, which you have, Comfort from his love, which you have. A common sharing in his spirit, which you have. Tenderness and compassion through Jesus Christ laying his life down for you, which you have. Then it should inform what you do. And he says in verse 2, If you have these things, which you do, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit, and in, one, in, in spirit and of one mind. What Paul is getting ready to do is, is give the Philippian church a reminder of who they are to be. Now, as we lay out these core values, what I want you to understand is this. We, we don't do these things to get something. We're not doing these things so that God will love us more. We're not doing these things to, to earn certain things. We're certainly not doing these things, these core values, to earn salvation. All of this is from the standpoint of who Jesus is, what he has done on the cross for us. So it springs from it not to receive something. And again, this is what Paul is saying. Because of who Jesus is, because of the people that he's made you through his death, burial, and resurrection, this new identity that has been given to you now informs what you do. So since you have all of these things, make my joy complete by being like-minded. Find unity in Christ, being one in spirit and of one mind. He's going to come to somewhat of the, uh, the pointed moment in Philippians chapter 2. Really what Jesus has, has purchased us from, this mindset he has saved us from and given us a new mindset. He says it in chapter 2, verse 3. He says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interest, but each of you to the interests of the others. Now, as you read this, understand this. This flies in the face of conventional wisdom. What Paul writes in verses 3 and 4 absolutely flies in the face of the message that you hear as you leave this place. You're going to hear it's, it's all about you. Elevate yourself. Do what makes you happy at the expense of, of anybody else. This is about you. 
Look out for number one. If you don't, who will? Uh, this is the message that you hear. And right away you can start to see why Paul says you're to, you're to live differently. You're to live a life worthy of the gospel. Well, we understand that because this is in direct opposition to the message that you hear everywhere else. Seek, seek your happiness first. Seek your wants and desires first. This is not a new phenomenon, by the way. From the very beginning, the first sin in Genesis chapter 3, this has been the draw for humanity. Now, you're not going to surely die. No, God knows when you eat, you're going to be like him. Elevate yourself. This is the common temptation for us. It's about you. It's about what makes you happy. Do what's going to make you God in your own eyes. So this is nothing new, but, but here's the thing. For us in our day, we have to fight against this. The church is not immune to this thinking. One of the, the ways that I see this so commonly play out in the churches is when something changes or, or something happens and we realize just how set in, in comfort or tradition we really are. You don't believe me? Try, try sitting in somebody else's pew tomorrow, next week. See what happens. Right? You're going to most likely get some looks like, like that's, that's my pew. Now, I get we are creatures of habit. I get we're creatures of comfort. But what Paul is trying to bring us back to is this. It's about the gospel. It's about, from the gospel, the identity that it gives us, looking out for the best interests of others, serving others. This should start to press against all of that stuff. This idea that, that this is mine. This carpet, these pews, that gym, whatever, this, this way of doing things, this is mine. No, it, it flies in the face of that. No, because now our response is, because of the gospel, because of the identity that we've received, the response is, no, no, how, how can I serve you? Not to sit back and say, who's going to serve me? How can I be served? What's, what's best for me? No, the gospel mentality says, how can I serve you? Why? Not, not to earn anything, not to do just good things on paper, but because of what was given to me. Because of the grace that I've received, because of what Christ has done for me, my response is now, how can I serve and love you motivated by the gospel? Nothing muddies up the gospel seen in us more than when the focus of us is on us. Nothing, nothing muddies up the gospel seen in us when the focus of all of us is on ourselves. The gospel is best displayed in living a life with eyes open to say, how can I serve you? And the question is, well, why should we? Why should that be our identity? Why should that be the posture of the church? Well, Paul's response is very clear because that's the response of Jesus. This is the way he lived. He says in verse 5, In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used 
to his own advantage. Well, Paul is reminding us of our identity. He's saying, listen, this, this, is, who, this is who has saved you. The second person of the Trinity, the one who was with God in the beginning, the one through all things were created, this is the one who set his life down for you. And as Harrison said, he didn't have to. He would have been fully justified in saying, this is the mess you created, you figured it out. No, but Paul says, He set his deity aside. Not not that he was not fully God, but yet he took on flesh and entered into your mess and my mess to save you. So so why should we live a a life that humbles ourselves and, and looks after the ways that we can best serve others? Because it's been done to us. Because this is what Christ has done for you. When you start to recognize that, you start to recognize that that this is an identity shift. This flies in the face of the message that you're hearing as you leave this place. As you go out into the world, you're, you're saying, no, humanity exists to serve you, when in reality what Christ has said is because of what I've done for you, your response is to go and serve. And so Paul continues in verse 7, rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant. Being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by being obedient to death, even death on a cross. God Almighty steps into our sin and becomes the remedy. Verse 9. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every other name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So, so why, why is Paul bringing them back to? This is the way you're to live among one another. That you're to serve, that you're to love one another, that you're to look after one another. Well, it's because he comes back and he says, remember whose you are. The King of kings and the Lord of lords has said, you have been bought with a price of my blood. This changes who you are. It certainly changes your future, but it changes now. Christ has come to save you now. His Holy Spirit is sanctifying you now. And so how does this practically work itself out in our lives. Well, Paul says this in verse 12. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. The response here is this. Who you are drives what you do. This is not a a truth that is limited to just Christianity. This is a universal truth that is adopted by everyone. Your identity, and, and in a universal scale, whether real or imagined, drives what you do. Your identity directs your actions. 
And so Paul has spent the first half of chapter 2 saying, this is who Jesus is, and this is who you are as a response. Now he's getting to the point of saying, now this is what you do. And in verse 12, he uses a phrase that as he's writing in the original Greek, he says, in our language, it says, work out. It practically means to work out, to exercise. It, it lends itself to the imagery of a gymnasium. And so Paul is saying, because of, of who you are, because of what Christ has done, because of who he's made you to be, now as you live your life, continue to exercise this faith. Well, how do we do that? We walk in obedience to his word. And his word says, this is the kind of people you are to be. A, a people of, of one mind, of one spirit, rallying around the person and the work of Jesus Christ, and now obeying his commands together. Work out your faith. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. What Paul is not saying is now you're going to work to make sure you earn it. No, Paul is saying because of the salvation freely given to you through Jesus Christ, your response is to exercise this obedience to him, to, to practically walk out your faith in obedience to his word and what he has said to do. So here's, here's the hard truth of this. To claim to be a believer in Christ, but neglect to walk in obedience to what he's called us to, paints a grim reality of, of if we are actually a believer. To, to claim the name of Christ, but yet to say, I don't really want to do what he said to do. I don't really want to walk in obedience to him. The, the response that Paul is saying is, is we've got to go back to the beginning and, and seriously examine if we're a believer or not. Because Paul's saying this, this goes with the territory. A believer in Christ doesn't always get it right, but is being sanctified day by day and is, and is seeking to work out their salvation through obedience to his word day by day. And Paul says, work this out with fear and trembling. What does that mean? Well, it means we are so in awe of who God is that the response to this is I'm going to do what he said. Let me, let me paint a practical application for you. Uh, many of you, and I don't know what your relationship like, was like with your father, but, but I, I know this in mind. I, I love my dad. I also knew that if I screwed up, <laughs> yikes. Not good. It didn't change the respect I had for my dad. My, in fact, it, it, wasn't, it wasn't being scared of my dad that, that drove me to want to obey what he said most of the time. No, it was because I loved him, because I respected him. I want to do what he says. I want to please him. So this is what Paul is saying. He's saying, have, have a, a reverence and awe for God, a love for him that now drives the obedience that you're working out. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Our identity directs what we do. And Paul is saying if, if you claim to be a believer who has been adopted into this family, your, your life's going to look different. The, the way we do church is, is going to look different because we exist to glorify God and serve and love 
our brothers and sisters in Christ. This is who we are to be. Now it sheds the mentality of what can I get out of today? What's in this for me? No, this flies in the face of that. And Paul says in verse 14, do everything without grumbling or arguing. <laughs> Doesn't exactly look like a realistic picture of the church that we often see. And Paul's not saying you're never going to disagree on anything. Paul's not saying you're not going to have certain preferences on certain things. But what he's saying is this should not drive what we do. My personal preference, your personal preference, the, the things I like, the places I sit, the things I want to do, it, it should not drive who we are as a body of believers. No, what should drive us as a body of believers is, is one thing. Jesus Christ. Who he's made us to be, that, that drives what we do. So why do we do everything without grumbling or arguing? Well, he says in verse 15, so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. In other words, again, setting apart. God has called us to be different. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. And then I'll be able to boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor in vain. This is who Christ has made you to be, a people set apart, a people that, that buck the conventional wisdom of the world that says, it's about me, and say, no, it's, it's about Christ. And as we flesh this out, as we work out our salvation, we're, we're looking to serve and honor and love one another. Verse 17, but even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. The gospel message has taken Paul to the ends of the earth, to the depths of despair, to the joys of seeing people come to know Jesus Christ. Paul has experienced it all for the gospel, and he says, even as my life is being poured out as an offering for the Lord, I I I'm boasting in that because I've seen him move through my obedience to him. Paul is not claiming it is my eloquence of speech that has caused these people to be saved. Paul is not saying it's anything that I've done. He said, I have worked out my salvation. I've done what Christ has told me to do, and I've served and loved the people around me. And you know what he's done? He's been faithful to do what he promised to do, spread the gospel message through my meager efforts. And he says, this is, this is very well costing me my life, but it's worth it. So what do I want from us? Not just our staff, but us as a church. I want us to be able to declare at the end of our life, whenever that is, I am being poured out to see the gospel reach my neighbors, to see the gospel reach my family, to, to serve and love one another. This is who Jesus has made us to be. This is who he's called us to be. Uh, people rallying around one central thing. 
And by the way, we can rally around one thing that's the wrong thing. We can rally around a production. We can rally around a a way of doing church. What what Paul has said is, no, the thing you rally around is the personal work of Jesus Christ. Like, we've got to get this right. And that informs the way that we live. So what kind of people are we called to be? We are called to be a people who are filled with the Word of God, filled with His Spirit, sanctifying us day by day. But for what reason? To be empty. To serve. To share the gospel message. To love people who, listen, we we are not always that lovable. So we need the Holy Spirit working in us to be able to love one another when we are not so lovable. But this is who he's created us to be. You want to you know a, a church that is fulfilling. A, a church that, that, one, glorifies God, but also gives you this sense of, of, of I belong to a group of believers, and, and it's satisfying to me. It's not all of these production things. It's not getting everything right. It's not saying all of these things. It's rallying around Christ and loving and serving your brothers and sisters in Christ. Like this is who he has created Redbrush Christian Church to be. A church that says, it is, it is not about me. It's about him and him alone. And if he laid down his life for us, then whether in in theory or in actual practice, I'm going to lay my life down for you. Father, would you make us this people? Lord, would your spirit move in us and draw us to understand who you've purchased us to be? Lord, would you remind us of our identity? An identity that is not found in our works, it's not found in what we've done, it is found solely in who you are and what you've done on the cross and in the empty tomb. Father, as believers in you, would you remind us that that we're called to to love and serve one another, not those who who think and look and act and, and vote just like we do, but God, the people that you've entrusted us with. Would we love and serve them out of the overflow of what you're doing in us? So God, first, would we, would we resolve to be a people who are filled with you, filled with your word? But God, then in response and as an act of worship to you, love the people around us. Father, we need your help in this. So Holy Spirit, would you sanctify us? And would you guide us as we seek to obey you? Father, we thank you for the cross. We thank you for the empty tomb. We thank you for your broken body and shed blood that draws us in, that makes us new, that shapes this new creation, this new identity. Father, would we work our salvation out with fear and trembling? Father, it is in your holy name that we pray these things. Amen.